Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. It's great to see you here today. Thank you for coming out on a Sunday and allowing Next to be a part of what it is God is doing in your life. We're honored by that. Podcasters, thank you for listening in today, and we pray that what you hear today would bless you as well. I want to just send out a quick shout out of thank yous to some people. Um, Julia, thank you for everything that you do to make Next what it is. Uh, Troy and Lisa, the stuff that you guys do, and Elsenrath always gets over here early and makes coffee for selfish reasons, but it's okay because he makes enough for everybody. Uh, Nathan and Renita and Haley and Heather and uh, Chris Watley, just want to thank everybody for the stuff that you do. Everybody that's brought snacks, bought snacks, provided them in the past, or going to bring them in the future, all that breakfasty stuff. We appreciate that. You just make Next a fun and welcoming place, and I appreciate everything that you do. I kind of feel like what we do in here on Sunday mornings works on a lot of levels. Uh, it's not to say that it's perfect, but um, it, it really does work, and it works because people are willing to serve and make the things that need to happen happen. So thank you for that. Um, I want to take a little detour this morning, and if you've been with us any time at all this year, you know that our focus for this year is what? Serve, right? Serve. We want you to find a place where you can impact the kingdom of God by serving others through your God design. That's our focus for the year. And we have, I feel like, thoroughly introduced that topic to you. Uh, we talked about what service looks like when you see a need and meet it when you know the price and pay it, and when you don't talk yourself out of it. That's what service looks like. And then we've talked about serving through your shape, and thank you, Rick Warren, for that. Last week, we finished up with the last of the five purposes from the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and we talked about God's power and your weakness and the four keys to making peace with your weakness. And uh, we did all of that for the purpose of helping you become a more informed, active, and capable servant. And we're not done with the shape idea yet. And shape is what? S is spiritual gifts. H is heart. A is abilities. P is personality. And E is experience, right? So we're not done with the shape idea yet. And we are certainly not done with our serve focus for the year. I've got some other material that I want to bring you at some point later about shape and service. But over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed something, and it's something that I've seen before. I'm just going to call it this kind of glazed-over look, and it's telling me that people are about shaped and served out for the time being. So uh, whenever I start to see that look and feel that, that little bit of stagnant air in the room more than I'm comfortable with, uh, it, it tells me that it's time to do something different. So beginning today and for the next few weeks, I want to bring you some material that recently challenged my thinking and, and in a good way, and it's, it applies to all of us, and it's very relevant to where we all are, whatever age you are. And it's, it's about finding, knowing, and doing God's will. Who wants that? Who wants to know, find, and do God's will? Absolutely. So basically serving. So this is served just in a different package. Um, but it's an interesting take on the subject, and it comes from this little book. You can see it's a little T90 little book, uh, Just Do Something. 
by Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, a liberating approach to finding God's will, or, and this is in this little text box right here, or how to make decisions without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, and writing in the sky, etc. Because we do rely on those things, don't we? So this little book, uh, several months ago, it did my heart and my head some good, and I really think it will help some of you as well. So we're going to take a little walk over the next few weeks through Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Okay, serious question. This is going to determine or, or allow me to determine the quality of who you are as a person and tell me some things about your childhood. So answer carefully. Who remembers Tinker Toys? Tinker Toys? I see some people that, that well, never mind. Tinker Toys. I had Tinker Toys as a kid, and mine were made of wood. Who had the, who's old school and had the wooden Tinker Toys? Go ahead and date yourself. Yeah. They are. They are. So, you know, back in the Stone Age. Now, most of what I made with my Tinker Toys were, they, they fall in, in, in one of two categories, maybe three. Uh, most of what I made were swords and guns. Didn't really make a whole lot of anything else. Uh with my Tinker Toys, but I, I did branch out today. And instead of a sword or a gun, I made a death-dealing robot. So, behold the Murdertron 5000. There he is in all of his glory. I can't ever really remember. I can't... M- Remember ever making really anything else? Uh, I never built an Eiffel Tower with my Tinker Toys. I never made an abstract work of art. It was always swords, guns, and now a robot can add that to my repertoire. I think it's kind of ironic that a toy set intended for making, uh, create for for sparking creative construction, I always used for making weapons of mass destruction. I feel like that probably says some things about my psyche that we shouldn't get into today, but. My swords and guns were rickety things. They would fall apart relatively easily in the heat of battle against ninjas and aliens, but they were also pretty easy to put back together. It's a great thing about Tinker Toys. Repair work is always pretty simple. Now, oh, these are Owens, not mine. Just want to clarify. These are Owens. Had to get those out of the attic, but um, they're plastic. They're not wooden. Inferior, in my opinion, but it's still a pretty cool toy. Tinker Toys hit the market in 1913, and the toy company Hasbro now owns the name Tinker Toy, and kudos to them because Tinker Toy has sold about 2.5 million construction sets per year for the past 100 years. Now, the idea for Tinker Toys came from three men named Charles Peugeot from Illinois and his partners, Robert Pettit and, wait for it, Gordon Tinker. Yeah, Gordon Tinker. And they dreamed up this idea for the Tinker toy as they watched children tinkering with pencils and sticks and empty spools of thread. And back then, whenever they first came out, the sets went by the less than memorable name Thousand Wonder Builders. That's what they used to be called. 
and they sold for 60 cents each. And you can still buy, for those of you old schoolers like me, you can still buy the wooden sets on Amazon for a modest price of $36, quite, quite far removed from the 60 cents that they used to be. But with over a century gone by, there's, there's still nothing really fancy about Tinker Toys. They're sticks and spindles with holes in them. And our digital screens that uh, we stick our faces in are a lot more complex and in some ways have more variety. But Tinker Toys still sell. And people still have Tinker Toys because kids like to tinker. And apparently, so do adults like to tinker. In the book entitled After the Baby Boomers, How 20 and 30-somethings Are Shaping the Future of American Religion, author Robert Wuff now describes 21-year-olds to 45-year-olds as tinkerers. Our grandparents built, our parents boomed. Now, my generation, we're Xers, Gen Xers, right? We're the whatevers. We're the, my generation is the we don't know what to call it, so we're just going to put a big X in there. That's, that's Gen Xers. And then the generation after mine, and there are some of you in here, you're the mosaics. You're the millennials. And that sounds really cool, but here's the deal. The people that are old enough to describe what you are yet don't know what you are yet or how to describe you. So we don't really know what, all's, what all pertains to being a mosaic or millennial, but we all tinker. We all tinker. And that's not to say that all tinkering is bad. Because those who tinker know how to improvise, they know how to specialize, they know how to pull things apart and put them back together. But tinkering also means indecision, contradiction, and instability. We are seeing two generations grow up, sort of grow up, who tinker. We tinker with doctrine. We tinker with churches. We tinker with girlfriends and boyfriends. We tinker with sexuality and gender identity. We tinker with college majors and jobs. We tinker with living with parents and living with friends and living on our own. And just as a whole, we're not very consistent. I said as a whole, we're not very consistent. We're not stable. We don't stick with much. And we aren't sure we're making the right decision. And most of the time, we can't even make decisions because there's too much to choose from. Right, Julia? We've got dis decision fatigue. Did y'all know that's a thing? Decision fatigue. There's so many choices. I'm exhausted by the possibilities. I can't even make a choice. And then we don't follow through. Young adulthood seems to be getting longer and longer. You know, it used to be that 30 seemed old and removed from youth. But now people are coming of age at 40, right? Consider this one statistic, and I'm not, I, I had loads of statistics. Thank you, Kevin DeYoung, but just consider this one. In 1960, 77% of women and 65% of men completed all of the major transitions into adulthood by age 30. Major transitions like leaving home, finishing school, becoming financially independent, getting married, having a child. And there are others, but those are the big ones. So that was in 1960, 77% of women, 65% of men. Now in the year 2000, and we're 18 years removed from that, but in 2000, only 46% of women completed those transitions by the age 30, and only 31% of men. 
And that statistic comes from the article, Get a Life, The Challenge of Emerging Adulthood, if you want to look it up. So it's the new term is adult-alescence, not adolescence, adult-alescence, and it's becoming the new normal. And I realize that there are certainly some good reasons why, and there are legitimate reasons why, you haven't completed some of those major life transitions yet. And just because you've been on the planet for a third or a quarter of your lifetime and still haven't completed the transition to adulthood doesn't just automatically mean that you're a moocher or a lazy bum or a self-indulgent uh, indulgent vagabond. It doesn't mean that. It could mean that. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. And there's this hesitancy in so many of us, especially in our younger people that are here today, but in all of us, there's an element of hesitancy that we feel in making decisions and settling down and getting on with life while we're searching for the will of God. Can I get an amen? Because y'all are quiet, and I know I'm talking good. And it comes from two sources, really. Unparalleled freedom and convenient postponement. Unparalleled freedom. You know, it's like nothing is settled after high school anymore. It used to be, but it's not that way. And, and nothing settled after college even because life is wide open and it's filled with all of these endless possibilities. And we have this sense of massive opportunity, but with that sense of massive opportunity comes confusion and indecision and anxiety. It's like this. With everything that I could do and everywhere I could go, how can I know what's what? And thus we have this passionate and constant need to discern the will of God for my life. And then the other side of it is convenient postponement. Finding the will of God becomes just a convenient out for some of us. Too many people pass off instability and inconsistency and all of this endless self-exploration as looking for God's will. As if not making up our minds and it's, it's like oh, I'm not going to make up my mind and, and I'm, I'm going to kind of try this and try that and sort of meander through life and call it spiritual sensitivity. But as a result of that, what we're really full of is passivity and empty on follow-through. We're tinkering. and We tinker around with everyone and everything. And we're tinkering while God is really telling us, I really want you to get off this long road to nowhere that you're on and finally make a decision. Get a job. Any job. Just get a job. Or quit that job and get a different job. Finish school. Finish school in something. Just finish school. Get married. Look, if you've been dating her seven years and you're still not sure she's the one, she ain't the one. Ladies, if he's been dating you seven years and you're not sure he's the one, he's not the one. Make a decision. Just, just do something. One of my favorite works of poetry, and it is a literary giant, and it comes from the genius of Dr. Seuss. Oh, there's so much in this. Just hang on. It's called The Zode in the Road. Did I ever tell you about the young Zode who came to two signs at the fork in the road? One said to place one and the other place two, so the Zode had to make up his mind what to do. Well, 
The Zod scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, I'll be taking a chance if I go to place one. Now that place may be hot, so how do I know if I'll like it or not? On the other hand, though, I'll be sort of a fool if I go to place two and find it too cool. In that case, I may catch a chill and turn blue, so maybe place one is best, not place two. But then again, what if place one is too high? I may catch a terrible earache and die. So place two may be best. On the other hand, though, what might happen to me if place two is too low? I might get some very strange pain in my toe. So place one may be best. And he started to go. Then he stopped and he said, on the other hand, though, on the other hand, other hand, other hand, though. And for 36 hours and a half, that poor Zode made starts and made stops at the fork in the road, saying, don't take a chance. No, you may not be right. Then he got an idea that was wonderfully bright. Play safe, cried the Zode. I'll play safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start out for both places at once. And that's how the Zode, who would not take a chance, got no place at all with a split in his pants. Hmm. Could just about take a text from that and preach. Quit tinkering. Start doing. Quit starting and stopping. Just just do something. So with that rather lengthy introduction in mind, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about the will of God in Christianese. Christianese. We've talked about that term in here before. Christianese, those are things that we say to other Christians in church that make sense to us and make absolutely no sense to anybody else. Christianese. The will of God in Christianese. Matthew 6 and 33, we'll launch from there today. You've heard this one before. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, or if you're in the New Living Translation like we are today, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you Everything you need. Life down here, folks, I don't know what your experience has been, but it's it's proven to be a confusing mess at times for me of fits and starts and dead ends and open doors and closed doors and possibilities and competing ideals. And there are so many decisions to make and not all of them are clear. Some are. Should I run over the old lady in the road? No, I should not do that. Most of them, though, aren't that cut and dry. What should I do this summer? What should my major be? What career do I want? Do I want a career? Where should I go to school? Who should I marry? Do I even want to get married? Do I want kids? If so, how many? Should I play sports or should I play an instrument or should I try to do both? What job should I take? Do I want to stay in my current job? Would another job be better than this job? Should I be a missionary? Should I be a pastor? Should I volunteer here or should I volunteer there? How should I spend my money? Where should I give my money? Where should I go to church? How should I serve my church? What should I be doing with the rest of my life? There's a great one. What should I be doing with the rest of my life and where and with whom should I be doing it? So many questions. And it's no wonder we are desperate to know the will of God for our lives. And here's here's a key question. If God has this wonderful plan for my life, how many of you believe that? If you believe that God has a wonderful plan for your life, raise your hand. Raise it high. Okay, you've just been set up. If God has this wonderful plan for my life, 
then how can I know what it is? How can I discover what it is that he wants me to do? If God has this wonderful plan for my life, why isn't he telling me? Has anybody been there? God, I believe you got this wonderful plan from life. What do you want me to do? And the silence gets uncomfortable. Do something. Yeah, absolutely. De Young admits that his answer is not original with him, but it's simple and it's biblical as far as I can tell. And this is, this is a quote directly from the book. De Young says, I'd like us to consider that maybe we have difficulty discovering God's wonderful plan for our lives because the truth be told, he doesn't intend to tell us what it is. And maybe we're wrong to expect him to. Who's confused? Well, welcome to the club. The will of God, that phrase, Christianese, the will of God, is, is one of the most confusing phrases in Christian vocabulary, Christianese. Because sometimes we speak of all things happening according to the will of God. It's just the will of God for that to happen. Billy, where'd you go? We were, we were talking about earlier. All these things are going to come to pass. It's the will of God. And then other times we talk about being obedient and doing the will of God. I just, I want to do the will of God. And then other times we talk about finding the will of God. And the confusion in our Christianese is due to our using the phrase the will of God in at least three different ways. And the first two are clearly demonstrated in Scripture, and then the third one is a little bit more complicated. So let's look at the first two. And we're going to call this one, God's will of decree, like a king making a decree, God's will of decree. If you examine the Bible, you'll see that God's will has two sides to it. It's like a coin, one coin, two sides. And the first side is God's will of decree. I see people writing and typing, and I love it. Jesus likes it when you take notes, too. The first side, God's will of decree. So in short, this is what God's will of decree means. God always gets his way. Now, I could stop right there, but I want to explain it a little more. But God always gets his way. God's will of decree refers to what God has ordained. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's sovereign will of decree. And all that he decrees will ultimately come to pass. God's will of decree cannot be thwarted. It cannot be circumvented. You can't change it. It is immutable. It is fixed. What God wills happens. And what happens is according to God's will. That's what we mean by God's will of decree. Scripture teaches us about God's will of decree. Ephesians 1 and 11 says this. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God works out Everything. The big picture, God makes it work out. The little details, God makes it work it out, work out. And everything in between the big picture and the little details, according, he makes it all work out according to his own good and sovereign purpose. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. I'm thirsty. Says this. 
What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God micromanages our lives. He doesn't just plan out a few big ticket items. Well, let's see. All right, Kaylin, uh, she's got to get married. All right, we'll check that one off. And maybe one day she'll have kids. We'll check that one off. And we hope she's a productive adult and moves out of her parents' house. We'll check that one off. And then one day she's got to die. So everything else in between, Kaylin, don't worry about it because I'm not worried about it. No. God is concerned not with just the big ticket items, but the little stuff too. He micromanages. He doesn't. He, he knows. He knows. If he knows, whenever the the smallest sparrow falls, and whenever the grayest hair comes in and lets go, and neither one of those comes and goes without him knowing it. Neither one of those comes and goes without God willing it. Acts chapter four, verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight. In fact, this has happened here in this very city for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. Watch this next verse. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to what? Your will. It's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. This is the crucifixion of God's son, and it happened according to his will. Every human complaint, every lament, every problem, every woe that we have, every abuse we've endured, every divorce, everything is somehow wrapped up in the will of God. And the answer for that is the cross. In the cross, we see the problem of every evil in this world answered. Because in the cross, we see an all-powerful God who works all things out for the good. You're talking about the unrighteous murder of the innocent Son of God. And it took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. The cross happened because God willed it to happen. God's will of decree. Psalms 139 and 16 says this, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Our lives, they unfold, they open and close according to God's will of decree. He wills it. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10, but we're going to do this one in the King James because sometimes nothing says it better than just some good old King James says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Or in other words, I will do what pleases me. I will do what fulfills my purpose. That's what that phrase means. So God knows all things, and he sovereignly manages and maintains it all. He is the architect, the engineer, the constructor, and maintainer of this universe and everything in it. That's your God. And his will of decree is absolute. 
It is from before the creation of the world, and it is the ultimate determination of all things, and it cannot be overturned. That's God's will of decree. Y'all get it? Okay. Then let's talk about the second one. God's will of desire. God's will of desire. This is the other side of the coin. Think of this as what God has commanded. What he desires from his creatures. If his will of decree is how things are. Then his will of desire is how things ought to be. So we've got a little theological bump to get over right here. How can God decree that all things come to pass and then still hold me accountable for my actions? Because if I did it, it's God's fault, right? Because he decreed it would happen. Y'all with me? It's the old divine sovereignty versus human responsibility question. Y'all know that was an old question? It's an old question. The Bible clearly affirms it's not either or. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. Is there divine sovereignty? Yes, there is. Are you responsible for your actions? Yes, you are. The Bible shows us this. In Jeremiah 25, we don't have time to go through the whole story. But basically, the, the nation of Judah, right, the Israelites had split into two nations. You had northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah did a little bit better than the northern kingdom of Judah. They held on a little bit longer, had some better kings, better leadership, whatever. And so Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered. The southern kingdom of Judah had not yet been conquered, but they were still messing up and they still wouldn't get their act together. And so finally in Jeremiah 25, God sent the wicked nation of Babylon to punish the people in Judah. But then God also punished Babylon for acting wickedly against his people. Think about that one for a minute. In the New Testament, we understand that God planned the death of his son. Yet there's this scripture in Acts 2 and 23 that tells us that the men who killed Christ were lawless men. Divine sovereignty doesn't mean you're off the hook for your actions. You're still on the hook. God is sovereign, but he is not the author of your sin. We are under his rule and reign, but we are accountable for what we do and what we say. Both sides of God's will are in Scripture. Same coin, two sides. God's will of decree, what he has predetermined from and for eternity, cannot be undermined. God's will of desire, the way that he wants us to live, that can be disregarded if you so choose. You can't change or deny the first one, but you can certainly disregard the second. 1 John 2, 15-17 says this, do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The will of God in this passage isn't talking about the way God ordains things and decrees things, but it's talking about the way God commands us to live. 
walking in the will of God through the Apostle John that wrote this is the he's essentially saying uh, walking in the will of God is the opposite of worldliness. Doing the will of God means that I say no to the desires of my flesh, no to the desires of my eyes and no to the pride that I have in my possessions. That's doing what pleases God. That's doing his will. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up the dead, brought up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. The will of God. As his will of desire means we do what is pleasing to him. A few more. Matthew 7 and 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. This is Jesus talking. This is red letter stuff. The will of God, folks, in this passage essentially is shorthand for obedience to God's commands and walking in his ways. Want to do God's will for your life? Do you want to do God's will for your life? Yes. Then obey his commands. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This, this one's interesting. It says, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Lord, what kind of secrets does God have? That must be amazing. But we're not accountable for them. You don't have to worry about those. That's none of your business. You got enough to worry about. Don't worry about the God's secrets because we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. This is the closest you're going to come, I, I think, in Scripture of finding God's will of decree and God's will of desire side by side in the same verse. God has secret things known only to him. That's his will of decree. His ultimate purpose and his sovereign will and how it all works together, that's God's will of decree. Secrets known only to him. But he has also revealed things that we are meant to know and obey and follow through on. His commands and his word. God's will of desire. Now there's a third way in which we sometimes speak of God's will. We've talked about God's will of decree and God's will of desire, but there's another one alluded to it earlier. And that's usually the one that we're really looking for whenever we speak of wanting to know God's will. That's usually the one we're, we're actually talking about. And that is God's will of direction. God's will of direction. And it's too bad that we're almost out of time. We're just going to have to put this one off to next week. So... Maybe you'll come back <laughs> and hear about why we should stop thinking about God's will like some type of cosmic corn maze, right? And then we can talk about why so many of us are directionally challenged. It's not a tightrope. God's will is not a tightrope. It's not a bullseye. And if you hit the bullseye, you win the lottery. And if you don't hit the bullseye, you know, you just might as well hang it up. But that's how we think of it. So God's will of direction. So until next week.
whenever we talk about God's will of direction. Here's something I want you to think about. Right now, with where you are in your life and the things that are going on with you and the people around you, honestly, don't raise your hand on this one, but honestly, are you struggling to know God's will for you? Can you not figure out what to do next or where to go next? Can you not figure out what to do next? If that's you, and I imagine it's more than one person in here, then here's a great question to ask. Have you already done everything that he has already asked you to do? Because maybe you're not waiting on God. Maybe he's waiting on you to do what he already told you to do. I know this is a novel concept, but maybe God's not the one being difficult and stubborn. Maybe it's you. And God's looking at you saying, I really wish she would quit being so difficult and stubborn. And just do what I already told her to do. Maybe. Maybe God's not going to give you the second step and the third step and the fourth step. And if he does that to you, if God comes to you in a dream tonight and gives you steps two, three, and four, while you're still on step one, I want to talk to you. I want you to call me. I want you to text me. I want you to remind me. Because I, I just want to know why he's showing favoritism toward you that he's not showing to the rest of us. Forget the rest of us. I want to know why he's showing favoritism toward you that he's not showing to me. But I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say God is probably not going to give you steps two, three, and four until you obey step one. And that's biblical. We got good Bible for that. God's process of revelation always hinges on obedience and faith. So until next week, if you're one who's wrestling with God's will for you in your current season, I want you to spend a little bit of time this week honestly asking, God, I want to know what the next step in your plan for me is. So, and I really want to know it. So what have you already told me to do through your word and through your spirit that I'm not doing? God is the hang up me. Is the obstacle me? If it is, show me. Tell me again. Tell me again. Tell me one more time what it was you wanted me to do. And make it really clear. Pray that. Pray that and see what happens. Write it down. And then do it. Do it. Just do something. Next week, God's will of direction and We'll talk about being directionally challenged. Let's pray. Sometimes, Lord, we overcomplicate things through ignorance. Uh, we overcomplicate things just because we, we don't understand. Sometimes we're just rebellious. We don't want to do it. And uh, that's the reality of who we are sometimes. 
I thank you for grace and mercy that stands in the gap. Lord, we want to serve, and we want to serve you effectively. We want to serve you creatively, and we want to serve you in the, in the ways that you shaped us to do. Sometimes we just don't know exactly what to do, where to go. So as we go through this season, Lord, of, of talking about your will and examining where we've not done the things that you've already told us to do, help us. That's all I can pray. Help us. Help us to help us just to do something. To do something. And to trust that you are going to direct and guide our steps in your In Jesus' name.